bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, October 11, 2011. I'm going to start this week's podcast with a discussion of a confidential leaked draft of the preamble to the Volcker Rule. I'm going to discuss what the Volcker Rule could mean for low-income housing, new markets, historic, and renewable energy tax credit investments. Then I'll share a brief update about recent information we've received about the IRS's position on the economic substance doctrine. Then, moving on to our renewable energy tax credit section, I'll review guidance that was issued last week it was issued by the IRS regarding the federal income tax treatment of the receipt of excessive payments under the Section 1603 cash grant program. I'll also discuss a recent report from the Congressional Research Service where it warns Congress about the consequences of letting tax incentives for when production expire. In our low income housing tax credit segment, I'll discuss legislation introduced last week that would allow formerly homeless youth who attend school full time to qualify as low-income tenants. Then, in the new market tax credit discussion, I'll review the City of Fund's most recent Qualified Equity Investment, or QEI, issuance report. I'll also give one last reminder for ninth-round new market tax credit applicants about this week's QEI issuance deadline. And finally, in the historic tax credit segment, I'll provide state-level updates about state historic tax credits in Missouri and Indiana. If you're ready, Let's get started. In general news, we start off with a review of a draft preamble to the Volcker Rule, a draft that was leaked last week. Now, as longtime listeners will recall, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or the OCC, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, or the Fed, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, and the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, have been drafting regulations to implement Section 619 of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. Section 619 contains certain prohibitions on proprietary trading and certain relationships with hedge funds and private equity funds. Now, these prohibitions are commonly referred to as the Volcker Rule. Now, the Volcker Rule would serve to limit the ability of banks to make investments and private equity funds, such as low-income housing tax credit, new market tax credit, renewable energy, or historic tax credit equity funds. That's why these communities are so concerned about the Volcker Rule. As such, last year, the Novogratic Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Working Group and the New Market Tax Credit Working Group submitted comments to the Treasury Department's Financial Stability Oversight Council regarding the Volcker Rule. Now, in those comment letters, the working groups essentially recommended that banking entities should be c- permitted to continue making low-income housing tax credit and new market tax credit investments and not be limited by the Volcker Rule. We also, these groups did, recommended that banks be able to continue to sponsor such investments as well. 
Now, the groups, the New Market Tax Credit and Long Living Tax Credit Working Groups, believe that such an exemption and allowance would be consistent with Congress's intent and plan for the purpose of the tax credit programs and also consistent with the purposes of the Volcker Rule. Now, as I mentioned, the Volcker Rule does prohibit certain activities by banking entities. However, under Section 619D1, an area that has general limitations, there's also, within those limitations, certain permissible activities. So these permissible activities are the area within which various tax credit investments are attempting to fall. Specifically, a permissible activity is an investment that promotes the public welfare. Now, the tax credit community, more broadly, applauded the inclusion of this language in the original rule because it did recognize and is consistent with Congress's legislative intent in enacting incentives such as the New Market Tax Credit and the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. Now, the working groups last year, in the letter to the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, they did request that FSOC issue specific guidance just to reinforce that these tax credit programs do qualify as permissible activities by a banking entity because they do meet the requirements of promoting the public welfare. Now, this would be consistent with the treatment that the historic rehabilitation tax credit already receives, and that's because in addition to public welfare investments being a permissible activity, historic tax credit investments are also specifically delineated as a permissible activity under the law. I know that renewable energy tax credits are not listed as a specifically identified and enumerated activity. As such, for renewable energy tax credits to qualify, they would need to also meet the definition of a public welfare investment, which would be in part serving low-income communities or low-income persons. So any uncertainties about the permissibility of these types of investments would obviously create impediments to investments in low-income, rental housing, new market tax credits, and certainly renewable energy tax credits. So let's look, about, look at what the draft rule included. So Section 13 of the proposed rule that implements the exemptions that I've mentioned beforehand, they say that a banking entity would be allowed to acquire an ownership interest in or act as a sponsor to an investment that is designed to promote the public welfare or designed to promote an investment in a qualified rehabilitation expenditure project. It's, it's a kind of a convoluted definition in the statute, but it essentially means promoting an historic tax credit investment. Now, in the preamble to propose rule, the agencies say, and here I'm just going to quote the preamble, or a portion of the preamble, quote, in addition to the acquisition or retention of an ownership interest, permitting a banking entity to act as a sponsor to these types of public in interest investments will provide valuable expertise and services to these types of entities as well as help enable banking entities to provide valuable funding and assistance to small business and low and moderate income communities. Therefore, the agencies believe this exemption would be consistent with the safe and sound operation of banking entities and would also promote the financial stability of the United States. In the draft rule, the agencies do request comments on whether their approach is effective and if not, what alternative approach would be more effective. The agencies also ask if the approach should include other elements, and if so, which. Now, of particular interest to the affordable housing community, 
The agencies asked for input about what effect the proposed rule will have on a banking entity's ability to sponsor and syndicate funds supported by public welfare investments or loan compensating tax credits that are used to assist banks in meeting their Community Reinvestment Act obligations. The draft also asks if the proposed rule unduly constrains a banking entity's ability to meet the convenience and needs of the community through CRA or other public welfare investments or services, and if so, why and how the proposed rule could be revised to address this concern. Now, the FDIC is expected today to formally adopt a close version, if not the exact version, that was leaked of the rules. Bearing in mind, these are proposed rules with comments invited by December 16th, we think. The SEC is expected to meet tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, to similarly adopt the proposed rules in the preamble. The OCC and the Fed aren't expected to have any formal public meeting, but will approve uh, soon. Now, if you have thoughts about these rules, I would encourage you to send them to me at cpas at novaco.com. We expect the Novogratic New Market Tax Credit, Lung Limiting Tax Credit, and Renewable Energy Tax Credit working groups to all submit comments by the December 16th deadline. And just to restate, there are three major issues that the affordable housing, community development, historic, and renewable energy communities are concerned about. One is the ability to continue to invest. These rules appear to allow banks to continue to invest in long-term tax credit, new markets, and historic projects, and renewable energy projects if they meet the public welfare exception. Similarly, it appears to allow banks to sponsor, to serve as syndicators of otherwise qualifying investments. The rule appears to be silent as to whether or not banks could be guarantors of such investment, and we expect that we'll be seeking guidance from the various regulatory bodies as to the ability of banks to guarantee such investments under the limitations of the Volcker Rule. Once again, please send me comments to cpas at novoco.com as you review these rules and attempt to determine their impact in these areas. If you haven't seen a copy of the rule, you can go to my Twitter feed, and I have links to the proposed rule and then to the leaked proposed rules and preamble. And once a public copy of the preamble and the rule is released by the FDIC or some other body, you can find it on our website. Next, I wanted to give a quick update as to where we stand with respect to SIFI charges. And you might say, what's a SIFI? A SIFI is a systemically important financial institution. And a SIFI capital charge is an added charge that will be imposed on large banks. The SIFI charge will be an extra 1% to 2.5% of capital that a systemically important financial institution or a SIFI bank will have to hold. It's basically going to require larger financial institutions to have larger capital bases than smaller financial institutions. There's going to be a meeting also today, October 11th, wherein the Financial Stability Oversight Council, FSOC, will be issuing guidance to repropose rules that will lay out the framework as to how SIFI designations will be made. Now, now the significance of the SIFI charge to the Affordable Housing, Community Development, Historic Renewable Energy Tax Credit investing community is what sort of yields banks will have to generate on such investments. The higher the capital holdbacks that are required, 
the more profit that will have to be generated, the higher yield other investments will have to generate. So we'll be watching this SIFI charge process closely and seeking to assess what impact it might have on the yields banks need from such investments. Let's turn now to the economic substance doctrine. A senior IS official last week said that the IRS's directive about cases that involve the codified economic substance doctrine should not be viewed as legal precedent. So this IRS directive is not legal precedent. Now this report is from BNA. The directive issued in July provides guidance for examiners to use in determining whether and when to seek high-level review in asserting the application of the economic substance doctrine. Now in general, the tax credit community applauded the recent directive as a step in the right direction for all congressionally authorized tax credits. However, BNA reporting is reporting that Mark Perrowin has said, and Mark Perrowin is special counsel to the Associate Chief Counsel for Financial Institutions and Products, quoting Mark Perrowin as saying that the directive is, quote, just that, meaning it's only a directive, nothing more. BNA reports that Mr. Perrowin also reaffirmed that the IRS has no plans to provide an angels list. That would be a list of transactions that would pass muster under the codified, under this economic substance doctrine. Now, in terms of congressional hearings this week, tomorrow, October 12th, the Senate Finance Committee will hold a hearing entitled Tax Reform Options, Capital Investment and Manufacturing. It's one more in a series of Senate Finance hearings on tax reform. There's also another interesting hearing tomorrow about the National Infrastructure Bank. Now, it's a House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, or really subcommittee, it's the Highway and Transit Subcommittee hearing. And the hearing's title will tell you all that you need to know about the Republican-led committee's view of a national infrastructure bank. Here is the hearing title, and I quote, National Infrastructure Bank, quote, more bureaucracy and more red tape. So I think you know what direction that hearing will take. And then I'll also close legislative update with a note that a jobs package, the modified jobs package, that was recently introduced in the Senate may get some floor action this week. So this is the President's jobs bill, uh, and we expect that the spending provisions of the tax portions of the jobs bill will be the same. It's only the revenue offsets that have changed, and Senator Reid is proposing a 5.6% surtax on millionaires that would help pay for the cost of the jobs bill. So we expect to see some action on the floor of the Senate this week, and we certainly do not expect it to pass because we don't think it'll garner enough support from the Republicans. In renewable energy tax credit news, the IRS addressed excessive payments under the Section 1603 cash grant program. Basically, they were addressing situations where taxpayers received more in grant proceeds than they ultimately determined to be eligible for. Now, specifically, in the event that the IRS determines that a taxpayer's project did not qualify for all or part of a payment it received under the Section 1603 cash grant program, then the excessive amount of the payment is includable in the taxpayer's gross income. Now, this isn't a surprise. You would expect any excessive payment or excess payment would be treated as gross income. 
If you want to see the actual memorandum, just go to just look up Associate Chief Counsel Memorandum 2011-004. It's also on our Renewable Energy Tax Credit website. Now, among other things, beyond mentioning that it's gross income, the memo does say that a taxpayer that receives a Section 603 payment, in addition to including the excessive amount in income, it also is allowed a deduction to the extent that it returns that excessive payment to the federal government. Now, of particular interest to the listeners, the memo also says that a taxpayer's basis in a project for which the taxpayer receives an excessive payment under 1603 is not reduced by the excessive amount. So basically, there's a parity. It's saying rather than omitting it from income and having a basis reduction, you have to treat it as income, and there is no basis reduction. Now, more information about this memo will be discussed and shared by industry experts at Novograd and Company's Financing and Renewable Energy Conference on November 17th and 18th in Washington, D.C. Now, if you have any questions in the meantime about this memo, please give my partner, Tony Grapponi, in our Boston office a call. Now, I also wanted to share some recent information about a congressional report on wind incentives. Specifically, a report issued late last month by the Congressional Research Service warns that if Congress lets the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit for Wind Energy expire at the end of 2012, it will stall the industry's growth in the U.S. Now, the Congressional Research Service is a nonpartisan agency that provides policy research for Congress. As many listeners know, the production tax credit has been allowed to expire three times in the past 12 years. In a report dated September 23rd, the Congressional Research Service notes that the U.S. wind industry is an expanding source of new manufacturing jobs and that its future hinges on consistent state and federal policies, including federal tax policies. The American Wind Energy Association, or AWEA, reports that projectivity and back orders for 2013 and beyond are scant. That's because of a lack of a predictable business environment. To the extent that the production tax credit expires unless projects are placed in service by the end of 2012, you find that starting now and beyond, not as many new wind energy projects are being developed for fear that they couldn't possibly be placed in service in time. Now, Novograd and Company has posted a copy of the report on the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Resource Center website. As you know, that's www.energytaxcredits.com. In low income housing tax credit news, formerly homeless youth who attend school full time could be eligible to reside in low income housing tax credit units if legislation sponsored by Representative Jim McDermott of Washington is enacted. The bill, H.R. 3076, was introduced last week and it's co sponsored by Congressman Eric Paulson and Keith Ellison. The bill would add formerly homeless youth who attend school full time to the list of exceptions to the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program student rule. The rule bars full-time students from residing in a low-income housing tax credit unit unless they live with a qualified low-income tenant who's not a full-time student or they fall under one of the exceptions already provided in the Internal Revenue Code. The rule is designed to prohibit the use of low-income housing tax credits to finance dormitory or student housing. It's also meant to prevent students with temporarily low incomes from using resources meant for individuals and families with more severe and long-term housing needs. 
Several groups are already exempt from the student rule, including single parents, individuals receiving public assistance, and former foster youth. The bill has been referred to the House Ways and Means Committee, and you can find a copy of H.R. 3076 at www.taxcredithousing.com. In New Market Tax Credit news, last week, the CDFI Fund released its monthly update to its ongoing Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. The report identifies the dollar amount of allocation authority that has been issued to investors and the amount remaining to be issued to investors. In September, about $885 million of QEIs were finalized. That's about $187 million more than the amount that was finalized in August. The amount still available in New Market Tax Allocation Authority is about $5.6 billion, this as of October 4th. Now, regular listeners will recall that we predicted this dramatic increase in QEIs in September because the ninth round eligibility requirement related to QEI issuance is coming up. Specifically, organizations that applied for the ninth round of New Market Tax Credits and previously received an award of New Market Tax Credits have until the end of this week to meet their minimum qualified equity investment threshold. In order to be eligible to continue their application for new market tax credits in the 2011 round, applicants must have issued a requisite amount of QEIs from their prior allocations by Friday, October 14th. Now, if you have any questions about the October 14th QEI issuance deadline, please contact my partner, Owen Gray, in our San Francisco office or Annette Stevenson in our Cleveland, Ohio office. And please note, you don't have to just have issued them. There's also recording online that has to be done. If you have any questions whatsoever, please contact your tax professional. In historic tax credit news, we start with the Missouri update. On Thursday last week, the Missouri House approved its version of a wide-ranging tax credit bill. Now, we've been following this proposal for quite some time because of its implications for the fate of the state's historic tax credit as well as its long-compensing tax credit. Now, while it's only one of 31 state historic tax credits in the country, Missouri's historic tax credit is considered to be the largest of its kind. Supporters of the program have been working for more than a year to communicate to legislators how the extended economic benefits of historic tax credit projects outweigh the costs. The bill passed by the House last week does not, does not place sunsets or any sunset on the state's historic preservation or long-term tax credit program. Now, that's what's been called for in the Senate. Instead, House leaders aim to appease the Senate with a new proposal. In the bill passed last week, the House included a provision that would require all tax credit programs to be reviewed every four years and be subject to a renewal vote by the General Assembly. Following the vote, Senate President Pro Tem Rob Mayer expressed disappointment that sunsets for historic preservation and localizing tax credits were not restored in the House bill. At the end of last week, Senate President Pro Tem Mayer said he hoped the House would appoint a conference committee to work on the points that remained under contention. So, for the time being, it seems the sag in Missouri is going to continue. Meanwhile, in Indiana, in a similar but significantly less contentious situation. Historic preservation advocates urged state lawmakers last week to expand the Indiana Historic Preservation Tax Credit. The Courier-Journal reports that Marsh Davis, 
the president of Indiana Landmarks, told the legislature's Commission on State Tax and Financing Policy that the cap on the amount of credits issued annually is so low that developers and investors must now wait more than a decade to reap any benefit. Davis told the group that this means the credit fails to act as an incentive for projects, those projects that need just a small boost to become a reality. However, even lawmakers that believe the tax credit is a worthy program argued that expansion of the tax credit would cost the state money that it can't currently afford. The Courier-Journal reports that Tax Commission Chairman Senator Brant Hirschman said the state doesn't have money, quote, lying around to fund all the credits out there, close quote. The General Assembly created the Indiana Historic Preservation Tax Credit back in 1994. It offers users a state income tax credit of up to 20% of the cost of the preservation and restoration, up to a maximum of $100,000 per project. According to a report from the state's Division of Historic Preservation and Archaeology, which certifies projects that qualify for the tax credit, just paying off the credits that have been approved but pushed into future years would cost nearly $5 million. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novago.com.